Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. everybody. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. Y'all did it on the clap. I didn't know if it was going to make it. It moved real slow like a wave. I didn't know. After Brad's preaching last week, he would have been real disappointed, I think, if we didn't like, get it all the way across. So way to go. Good work. A uh, couple of quick things. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one. There should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you would, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Uh, seeing Christ in Isaiah is the name of the series as we do these four Sundays of Advent leading up to uh, the celebration of Christmas. Depending on which Bible you pull, it'll either be on page 571 or on page 445. But go ahead and get there if you would. All right, a couple of quick things. All right, so um, number one, for all of you who tell me that I look good when I wear a suit, you're not actually encouraging me to continue to wear a suit because it makes me feel, feel very awkward when you're like, hey, you look really good today. And I'm like, well, thank you today and not every other day that you've known me for the rest of my life. But I'm, I'm, giving it, I'm giving it my Christmas best Advent shot. So here we go. We'll see if it makes it with a jacket on the whole way. Thank you. Wow. I'm assuming you're 50 or above, and we're going to keep going. All right. So Isaiah chapter 6. I really want to do three things this morning. So if you're a note taker, here, here are kind of the three things. Number one, I want to do an overview of a 66-chapter book. All right. After y'all just ate turkey... This past weekend, so this will be an endeavor. We're going to do that super quick. Uh, Secondly, I just want us to dig in to a few of the chapters on the front end of Isaiah and enjoy the depth and the beauty of these Advent passages, really, that we've been singing and, and already reading together. And then ask the question, because if you grew up in the church, you've heard the Christmas story as many years as you are old at least. And I think sometimes when we hear the same story over and over, it can become sort of just that to us. It just becomes a story. But there's a difference in a story that we read in Scripture and a story that we hear anywhere else. And so I kind of want to separate it out and say, well, what does this mean for us today? Does, does, does the Advent season, does the incarnation, does the virgin birth matter to us today? Or is it just part of a story that we tell that we believe because we're Christians? Is there something bigger and deeper behind it than just the cultural acceptance of Sunday morning congregations around the season of Christmas? Does that make sense? So, so that's kind of the hope of what we're going to do. Let me pray and then we'll get started. If you would pray alongside with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we pour into your word that we would come to it very much the same way that Isaiah himself comes to it and we would recognize a very woe is me situation. That as we come to your word, it is just that the word of God, not a God, but the God, not just some word, but the word that you saw fit to deliver to us through men inspired by the Holy Spirit that would stand the test of time and not just the time of humanity, but the time now and forevermore. And so as we look into it, may the gravity of your word hit and crash upon our hearts and may we realize our frailty. And in our frailty, would it not cause us to, to spurn you Or to try to bolster ourselves up, but rather may it cause us to realize that salvation is from the Lord and from the Lord alone. And in so doing, would that create in our hearts and in our minds this this ideal environment to appreciate, worship, and celebrate the incarnation. The coming of Christ, fully God and fully man, would would this morning, this, this little bit of time that we get to spend together, would it prime the pump for more than just what plays on Sunny 100? Would it, would it prime the pump for more than just decorating a tree or gathering around with family that we don't see very often? May it call us into a much deeper family, much wider family, one whose lines are not drawn in blood but are drawn by the very finger of your spirit as you woo and call people into your family through adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High. And with that illicit worship, 
and a life lived in response of gratefulness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. All right, so here we go. We're going to do an overview. Uh, there's a, a million different things that we could talk about. I, I really just want to hit two. Who is Isaiah? Who is this guy? Isaiah was a major prophet. Um, major, not because he was a big deal. He doesn't get a letterman's jacket. And, and like, Hosea and Joel are like, man, we were just so close. And Isaiah's like, yeah, but I'm major. You're minor. You just No, he's major because he wrote a lot. So we're talking about Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, like major prophets because they wrote a lot. Teacher's pet maybe kind of thing, like wrote a lot. And that's going to separate him off. But what's also interesting about Isaiah is that he was a husband. Isaiah was married. He was a father. He had a couple of sons. But what is most interesting about Isaiah is actually his name. His name means the Lord saves. And this is actually going to be a theme of the entire book. As we see in the Old Testament, many times the name that God gives someone or the name that someone is given often directs, defines who that person is in light of God's word, in light of redemptive history. And that is absolutely 100% true of Isaiah. His name means the Lord saves and salvation coming from the Lord is going to be a huge thing. The first time I looked at the book of Isaiah was I think in high school. I'm sure I sat in a pew as a kid and turned to Isaiah. But the first time I, I was ever like, hey, what's this book that hangs out around Psalms that I see all the time? Maybe I should read it. I got on one of those kicks. I don't know whether or not that's a, a good thing to recommend, but you understand what I mean when I say I got on a reading kick. Maybe it was conviction. Maybe it was just the Holy Spirit like pushing it on me. Maybe I was in the, I don't know what it was, but I was like, I need to read the Bible more. And so high school Will was like, why not Isaiah, right? I mean, it's there and it's bigger than Galatians. I can feel good about it at the end of the day, right? Read Galatians, it's good. But my point is it was gonna be an endeavor for me to do so. So what I did is I went down into, I was living at home, went down into our family's basement where the old couch was. You know, the old couch that used to be the good couch, but then you got a nicer couch and for whatever reason, you didn't get rid of the old couch, so it just went into storage, but it had already been like worn down and nice and soft. So I was like, if I'm going to read Isaiah, I got to get on the old couch. And so I sat on the old couch and I opened it up and high school Will just started reading. And I was all pumped about it, right? Like, I'm going to read the book of Isaiah. So I'm reading it, I'm reading it, and I get a few chapters in and I'm like, I have no clue what is happening here. Like, I'm all excited, I'm all pumped, I want to glorify God, I've already kind of dedicated, I'm going to do this thing, no clue what's happening, and I just kind of like grind it out. And I'm like, all right, and I get to the end of it, and I was like, all right, great, God's good, and the Bible's awesome, and I have no clue what I just read. And, and, and that was my first experience with the book of Isaiah. Everybody, Isaiah chapter 6, I, I want us to have a little bit more, hopefully, than that as we spend these next few weeks together. And by the way, uh, let me recommend a great resource for you uh, from YouTube. Uh, I feel like I can pull the young guy card and recommend YouTube. And those of you older people that are going all squinty-eyed at me right now, I'll just let you know that Brad likes this website too. It's called Read Scripture. And it's these just excellent guys who have spent an elaborate amount of time wonderfully doing overviews of, I think they've gotten every book of the Bible done now, every book of the Bible in like five or 10 minutes. I would highly recommend that, especially if you're like, oh, I'm going to start a new book. I would highly recommend that. All right, Isaiah chapter six, verse one. So, so let me, let me tell you just a little bit about who he is, and then we're going we're gonna to do some fun history stuff together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they say this, verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, so now Isaiah is seeing all this. He's experiencing all this. God spoke many times in the Old Testament through visions and wonders in calling people to himself and commissioning them. That's exactly what he's doing with Isaiah. And here is Isaiah's response in verse 5. He sees all this. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and not only that, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is, this is Isaiah's experience. And what we see in this is really this really kind of tight shot pattern of the gospel 740 years before the coming of Christ. Look at what happens. He sees God, God's glory and he immediately recognizes God's sin. So there's this immediate correlation between him seeing how great and amazing God is and then within the next millisecond moment and breath, he realizes how busted up he is and how busted up his culture is. Now that hasn't changed for us. Then it goes on and he assumes he's going to be destroyed. He, he, he knows wrath and punishment is coming. I'm about to be burned up. I've seen God and I am unworthy to be here. But instead, Scripture tells us that God purifies him by his own hand. Now this theme of God being the one who purifies and doing it by his own hand is not just a theme of Isaiah's life. It's not just a theme of his book which which outlives his life and prophesies over a hundred years beyond his death that God's hand is going to deliver people. It's the message of the Bible from Genesis all the way to this point and from this point all the way through the end of scripture that the Lord is the one who saves by his own hand. But I do think it's interesting that the angel doesn't just like bare hand the coal, right? Like, have you thought about this? The angel was like, oh, I better use tongs on that thing. Here, give me your lips. Like, there's nothing that guarantees that God purifying us is necessarily going to be a pleasant thing. What it does guarantee is that the end result is far better than anything we ever could have attained on our own. You see this? And then God commissions him, commissions him verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Little Trinity tucked in there. Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And you've got to see this because it's beautiful. The one who's caught up in this vision, not because he did anything necessarily to deserve it, goes all of a sudden from seeing majesty to groveling in humility to raising his hand and saying, here, send me. And, and that's the way that I think it's really supposed to work with all of us. We may not have this vision, but if you're a believer, you have this story, right? Like this is the gospel in a seed form. And what we have is this coward all of a sudden because of God being empowered and he goes out and he does these incredible things. So that's Isaiah. That's who he is. That's his story. He's got a couple of kids and they'll come into play later. We probably won't see a lot of them today. So what's going on? So, so we have this vision, but what's going on in Isaiah's world? Okay, here's the deal. If you're not a history person, I'm completely cool with that. If you're a history person, get excited about some history. If you're not like a history person, it's story time, okay? You see how that works? There's something here for everyone, okay? So what I want to do is either tell you the history or the story, depending, on what is going on in Isaiah's world. And here's what's going on. Right now, we're at about 740. That's why Isaiah 6 lays out in the year that King Uzziah died. It's kind of giving us a little on the timeline, a little dot. And it's saying in 740 years before Christ came, at this period of time, here is what was going on. God's people had been doing really what they've been doing from the beginning, which is running away from God, doing their own thing, and throwing themselves headlong into idolatry and whatever else the other nations had. They were always going after whatever else sparkled and gleamed and looked cool, just like we do. And, and God begins speaking into this. And what you need to do is you need to look at the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters, and you need to cut it down the middle, but not right down the middle. 
Chapters 1 through 39 are primarily about judgment. It's God saying, because you have sinned and you have continued in your sin, you are going to be judged. Not because I hate you, but because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. And my discipline is not going to be fun, like burning your lips with coal. It is not going to be fun, but it is going to allow for a remnant, those of you who will respond to the discipline of the Lord, to remain. The rest will be swept up. That's, that's chapters 1 through 39. Judgment is coming. But even in that, we have these really neat little breadcrumbs, these little Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs that are left that are pointing us forward to this greater hope. We hear about this king that's coming. And he's not like any other earthly king, even though God's people want kings like a lot of the other earthly kings. This king is righteous and he's just and he's pure and he's good. And instead of oppressing the people around him he's going to end oppression and not only is he going to be a good king but he is going to bring the law and not a law that oppresses but a law that's written on people's hearts and it's going to be a law that brings life not just a law that brings death because he is going to live it out for them and then finally he's going to do something that they had never seen before and that is he was going to open up the gates of Jerusalem the new Jerusalem so that the people of God are not just an ethnic people of God depending on where they were born, but instead this new king is going to usher in a kingdom of blessing and light and salvation that's going to be opened up to all the nations. That's what Isaiah is promising in these little bitty breadcrumbs. And so what happens is, or what is happening is, as Isaiah is like living and moving and walking around, is you've got Israel, okay? And after Solomon dies, Israel splits into two kingdoms. There's no way to make some of this stuff easy. The Bible uses Israel all the time. It's people, it's places, it's things, and it's themes. And so, there, uh, I'm, like, cliff notes can only go so far, right? Like, you're just going to hear the word Israel a lot today. And if you have question marks, just jot it down. I would love to sit down with you afterward. But the nation of Israel, let, let's just say it exists right here. And we're moving from east to west, okay? So you're looking at a map. And we've got Israel right here. Well, it gets split at the end of Solomon's reign into northern Israel and Judah. It's Israel, but it's northern Israel. And then it's Judah. And bonus points for anybody who can tell me uh, what is above Israel. Yes, starts with an S and ends with an area. It's Syria. Okay, so Syria is right above Israel. And what's happening right now is this massive tidal wave of force is coming toward them. And this tidal wave of force is Assyria. And it's just slowly crossing across the map. And as it's doing so, northern, northern Israel and Syria are like, okay, we got to team up because this thing is about to come and obliterate us. And they think by teaming up, they're going to suck Judah where Jerusalem is, into that alliance, but they don't. And God tells him, you do not need to do that. I'm going to cover you. I got your back, Jerusalem. I've got you. And the king at the time, Ahaz, Isaiah's like, just trust God. Okay, I know they're coming. I know they're coming. But instead of trusting God, King Ahaz instead makes an allegiance. Not with, not with nord, northern Israel and Syria. He makes an allegiance with Assyria, thinking, well, I'll just buddy up with them. Assyria will sweep through and take them out, and I will be fine. And they were right for a moment. Okay, if that went over your heads, let me do this in 30 seconds, all right? There's a girl that you like, okay? She's in the cafeteria and you walk by her every single day. But here's the problem. There are these two punks who are always messing with you, trying to trip you, taking your lunch money and pouring your milk out on top of you. So you decide, hey, I'm gonna get Lewis, big Lewis, who's in my class, and I'm gonna buddy up with Lewis. He's gonna walk in and he's gonna shut them down before I go in so then I can like swoop in and talk to the girl, right? That's what you're thinking. So you go and you make this allegiance with Lewis, like, dude, I will do your homework, I promise. Here's the the deal, you're failing Jim. Uh, no, Lewis isn't failing Jim. You're failing chemistry or biology or trigonometry. You're failing something that I can help you with. And Lewis is like, oh, that sounds good. And so you, you end up starting to do this homework for him, right? And you're sending it. So Lewis walks in, he takes those punks, snaps them over his knee, but lo and behold, the girl sees it happen. And now, she's not drawn to you when you walk in. She's already interested in Lewis, who just snapped these two punks over his knee, and you didn't get what you wanted anyway. That's exactly what's happening right here. Does that help? Does that help you a little bit in like a 1980s rom-com kind of a way? That's what's going on. And so we get, we get to this point, and, and, and there's this 
imagery of Israel all through it. In fact, if you're in chapter six, I think you can look up just, a, uh, if you're in chapter six, you can drop down to the last verse and you're gonna see the word oak. You're gonna see the word stump. There's this idea that God's people are a tree, but they're about to be cut down and they're gonna be cut down by this, this Lewis bully called Assyria. And again, it's not because God hates them. It's because he needs to discipline them because they won't trust in him. So sure enough, Assyria comes in and he cuts them down. And then Isaiah prophesies that that's not it. That there's going to be even more. And there's another nation who's going to come. And that little stump that's left is going to be set on fire. And all that's going to be left is this little bitty piece of what God's people were. But then we see in chapter 6, there's this, there's this speaking of a holy seed. In chapter 7, we see this this. This idea of an Emmanuel, of God with us. And in chapter 11, we see this branch growing up. And what happens is God's people being cut down by Assyria and burned by Babylon creates this ideal environment for this seed that is couched in being disciplined and trusting in God. And this is where we find hope. And this is the last part of the book. Chapters uh, 40 through 66. Hope enters in. The exile is going to end. They're going to return back. This is in the age of Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's build a wall, right? Like, let's get the gate up around our city. But the problem is Isaiah didn't live there. And so they're like, how is he talking about this? But God has given him this prophecy that exists before he even gets there. Isaiah Isaiah will never live to see this, but he writes about God's goodness. And sure enough, they're brought in. And how do God's people respond? They complain and they say, God, you've been ignoring us for 100 years. God's like, I didn't ignore you and in the middle of that last half of the book of Isaiah chapters 40 yet 40 through 66 there's this little trial and God's telling them I was not you're complaining as though I was not there it's not that I was neglecting you I was disciplining you and taking care of you because I wanted you to survive right and 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 what the Bible says is it says that God tells them, I lifted up Assyria to cut you down and I lifted up Babylon to burn you so that there would be something worth saving and then I lifted up Persia to come and sweep them all away so that you could come back and yet you still rebel. And so God says, you've been rebelling, you're continuing to rebel, so fine, I'm gonna do something new. And he sends this servant. And the servant is coming to restore Israel. He'll be a light to the nations but he doesn't come as a king like most would have expected. In Isaiah, we read that this servant suffers. He suffers and dies. But then, inexplicably, he's alive again. As though he was a seed planted in the ground at his death that is now coming back up to life. And this suffering servant has made a way through his death for two types of people. The humble and the wicked, the woe is me and the I'm good enough. And God does something that every other nation was claiming. Think, I mean, just think about what you know of Egypt from like growing up in school. The Pharaoh said that they were gods, right? That all of the nations declared this. Their kings declared that they were gods. And God says, I am going to make you so set apart that your king actually will be God because he will be me and hope is coming. And the book of Isaiah closes up. There are two things you need to walk away with this and then we're just going to enjoy a couple passages together. Number one, walk away from this background. Faith is a gift. It is not natural in man. We see this from left cover of the Bible to right cover of the Bible. We see this in who Isaiah is, the way that his vision comes about. And in every story that you will read in this book of God trying to rescue his people, faith is a gift that is not natural in man. If you think you have faith because of the family you were born in or the church that you go to or the things that you have done, you're just wrong. It comes as a gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us, as well as everything else. And then secondly, when we put our faith in something other than God, it always, 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 always leads to ruin. I don't care what it is, when you put your faith in something other than God, it always, always, always leads to ruin. All right. Let's do a little Bible reading. So jump to Isaiah chapter 7. I, w- I want to give us a little bit of a context as we look at this Advent season for what's going on. 
I'm going to start uh, chapter 7, verse 2, because I've sort of explained verse 1 to you already. Is everybody still tracking with me? I I just gave you a good history. Are y'all still? Everybody's good. All right, here we go. All right. When the house of his... Hang on. I shouldn't be walking with my Bible. All right. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Sound familiar? Right? Oh, Oh, okay. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees, you see the symbolism, of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, drop down to verse four, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. Now God knows Ahaz is not going to do what he's calling him to, but he puts this here that we would consider the way that we should respond when trouble comes. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, don't let your heart faint. In God's eyes, these nations are already smoldering. He knows the end from the beginning. Jump to verse seven, halfway down. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Drop, jump all the way down to verse nine, halfway down. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. There's this understanding that faith that is unseen dramatically is t- it's dramatically tied to what is seen. And God's saying, if your faith is not firm, then nothing in you is firm. Everything about your life is tethered to whether or not you are trusting in me. And that is true today. Verse 10. Chapter 7, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high. Ask whatever you want, as, as low as hell or as high as heaven. Ask for a sign. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith in me. Verse 12, but Ahaz, the punk, my addition, said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord God to the test. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, we could read this as high school will and be like, oh, this is a good thing, right? The Bible says don't put the Lord to the test. But he's already testing God. He's already making up in his mind that he's not going to trust him. He's already sending these emissaries to Syria, or he's already sending these emissaries to Assyria because he's worried about what's going on up in the north above him. And God's like, look, I'm even willing to give you a sign, a miraculous sign, a sign that no one else has ever believed has ever seen something that's never been done. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also, Isaiah says? Therefore, fine, you don't want a sign, you're getting one, and this is it. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there are a lot of there are a handful of different interpretations on what this means. What would Ahaz have even cared about somebody having a kid when war is imminent? Well, eventually Hezekiah is going to come and he's going to sort of do it right. He's he's going to fall on his knees when Assyria is banging down the door of Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden God just shows up. They go crazy, kill himself, and and like they're they're taken out. Angels, they come and the whole army is just destroyed. God takes care of it by His own hand. But then Hezekiah falls into the whole, the, a very similar thing. He's like, hey, Babylon, come check out how much money I got. And they like come and they're like, oh, this will be a nice thing in 100 years to conquer and take everything away, which is exactly what God said would happen. And so this can't obviously just be pointing to Hezekiah. There's got to be something bigger than that. Emmanuel means God with us. And Ahaz, hearing the name Emmanuel, God with us, would immediately begin to grate and file against his own hardened heart who had decided that God was not with them and they needed help from someone else. Jump to verse 18 in chapter 7. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. To God, nations are as flies and bees, little buzzing things. And they will come and they will all come and settle in steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In other words, this promised land that I've given you is about to be littered with your enemies because you refuse to trust me. But because you're my people, I'm going to take care of you even if only a handful remain. And then a really fun verse for me personally. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. What is this talking about? It's saying that beards are a very important and good thing. And I'm actually not kidding you. So 
what was, what's happening here is God is telling them that this razor is coming to shave them. And for some of us, we'd be like, that's all right, I got to do it in the morning anyway. But for them, what they're recognizing is forced shaving is a disgrace. And not only that, but the razor that's coming, they paid for. And it's this Assyrian army and it's going to sweep over them and it is going to bring about their disgrace. That's what's happening here. It's a similar saying for, for those of us that are in the beard world and it goes something like this. Um, he who shaves his beard for his wife deserves neither. That's, you can work on that. Okay? Consider others better than yourselves. Husbands, read Ephesians. But, but anyway, it's, it's a similar saying. But what we find here is the very thing that they, that God's people are trusting in to be their salvation will actually be their humiliation. And here's the thing, it's the exact same today. It doesn't matter what you are putting faith in. It doesn't matter if it's your strength or your mind or your wit or your intellect or your stuff or your family or whatever else, it doesn't matter. Because none of us are gonna say, I'm putting in my strength in what I can do. None of us are going to say that when we're standing like Isaiah was at the throne of God. Nobody's going to feel strong in that day, standing before God. You're going to feel very, very small. And if it's always been wit or intellect or, or your ability to, to perceive and understand things, nobody stands before God and feels like the wise man. Read Job. No, 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 no. Instead, you feel very, very foolish and if it's our stuff, if it's our things, can I just tell you that none of us are going to stand before God and feel like we have riches. All of us are going to look like the things that we have, the things that we own are going to be very, very paltry in comparison with the one who owns all things. If you are putting your hope in anything other than Christ, if you're putting your hope in anything other than the one that God has brought, Emmanuel, God with us, you are wasting your time. And that's an important thing to hear before Christmas. It's an important thing for us to understand. Chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, because they have refused my gentle stream that will never dry up and will always sustain them. 7, chapter 8, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. The, the picture that God is painting through his prophet Isaiah is this. There's this tidal wave of, of Assyria coming. Remember in our little history, this tidal wave coming? And it's going to be so big that it's not just going to take out what you want it to take out. It's going to take you out too. And you're going to be tiptoeing like a child who went a little too far in the deep end without his wings on, right? And you're just like trying to keep your head above water. That's exactly what God is saying it's going to be like. Barely breathing the water, coming up, wondering if there's any hope, if there is a way for you to survive. And here's how you're going to feel, chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, are they going to turn to God? Are they going to trust Him? Finally, is, is this cutting down of the tree going to humble them? Is this burning of the stump going to humble them? No, they will be enraged. And will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. Not woe is me looking down. But looking and spitting and cursing at God and what he's done. Verse 22. And they will look to the earth. And they'll walk down with their heads downcast. But behold, distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into deep darkness. Look at the next verse, the first word of the next verse. Isn't God good? But. And see, this is how God is with his people all the time. It's how he is with you if you're a believer. It doesn't matter how far you have run. It doesn't matter how much you have turned away. There is always a, a, a but. There is always something waiting there for you by the sheer providence of God because he has rescued you to draw you back to him. And that's what we see here. Um, 
darkness is not a good place to spend time. Uh, <laughs> uh, when um, we were in college, we were playing hide and go seek because that's what the college kids did back in my day. Um, if it makes you feel any better, we had like Pink Floyd playing really loud in the background and all the lights were turned off and the parents were gone. The, the, the point went that the lights were off and the parents were gone. It's that we had strobe lights and loud music and a bunch of grown men-ish playing hide-and-go-seek in this basement. Um, and one of our friends, for those of you who know him, I'll let you lavish in this, his name was E-Rock. One of our friends was uh, playing hide-and-go-seek with us and I was the finder and I came out and everything's dark with just a couple of strobe lights and I see him on the other side of a couch. But I can't let him know I see him on the other side of the couch. Or well, like Tom and Jerry, the thing. You know what I'm saying? So I pretend like I don't know that he's there. And I walk to the other side of the room. And as soon as he makes a move around the couch, I turn and I dash for him. And to try to get away from me, he turns his body like, like this. And he catches his head on the frame of a door. I'm not kidding you. It was one of the coolest things. In the sense that I'd never seen an injury like that playing hide and go seek. He hit his head so hard that there, were, there was a piece of his head stuck on the door frame. Yes. And like a little dent. I, he probably still has it this day. He's, he's not in town right now. But uh, he has this little scar. Had to like butter. We, we didn't care. I don't think we went to the hospital. We were just like, ah, just duct tape this thing, right? And so... And so I, I say that to tell you when we read this in verse 21 and 22 of Isaiah chapter 8, walking in dark is not a good place. Bad things happen, disaster comes, injury is ridden, and you really have no hope. Woe is me for I am lost, Isaiah says. That is a definition of walking in darkness. This is my favorite part of the whole sermon. Um, if you would like to, go to Luke chapter 2, but keep your other hand in Isaiah chapter 9. Um, here we go, Josiah. Josiah sent me a text. He was like, I promise no perfection this morning. I was like, that's all right. Here we go. We got Bibles. We got enough. Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Luke 2 Verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Back to Isaiah, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Luke 2, 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Isaiah 9, 3. You have multiplied the nation. We're not a remnant anymore. We're not just the few that could keep our nose above the rising tidal wave of Assyria. We're not just this, this broken down stump that's been burned up. Something is sprouting from it. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of many. You have removed the oppressor from us. And yes, this may be talking about a nation, but it's also talking about our sin. And it goes on in verse 5. Every boot of... Isaiah is so beautifully written. And it is so theological all at the same time. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All of this has been done. All of this war, all of this bloodshed, all of this horrible stuff has been wrapped up to be kindling for the fire that is the sacrifice and pleasing aroma to God. And the angel said to them in Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for a nation of people. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Back. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
whose kingdom will not end. Luke, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 740 years before, to to the gospel that we read today, to 2,000 years later, it's just been laid out. And the gospel's always been beautiful. In Genesis 3.15, when we first see this little seed of a gospel, it's always been beautiful. But But it's almost as though, as God continues over the course of time to unroll history, it's like it goes from black and white to technicolor, and from technicolor to whatever came after technicolor, and then from that to HD, and from HD to 4K, it it just keeps getting better and better, and clearer and clearer, and more and more amazing until we realize, like, how could it even get better than this? And then it, like, does. That's what God does with the gospel. He just keeps unrolling it and unrolling it. But Jesus came to serve. This is what Mark 10 says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the seed that is planted. So what does this mean? What what does this mean for us on the 27th of November in week one of a four-week Advent as we prepare for Christmas? What is, is it more than just a story? Is it more than just this promise of this virgin birth, which we've all heard about so many times, this idea of Emmanuel, of God being with us? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of things. What does this mean to us today? I, I know that I was told this story as a kid. My, my, I, I was in a church that, that preached the gospel and, and read the word, but I don't know if anybody ever told me why it actually mattered other than, well, you're a Christian, so this is what you believe. The virgin birth, why does it matter? Well, one, it's all over the Bible. Robert read it earlier this morning. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're really gonna have trouble believing in this. And if you have trouble believing in this, you've got much bigger problems. But in addition to that, bigger than that, it says, the virgin birth shows us that Jesus is full deity and full humanity united. Not half of one and half of the other. It's not like two puzzle pieces. It is a complete picture where Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. And if it was done in a different way, and perhaps God, who is God, could have certainly done it in a different way. Maybe there was a situation where there were no parents, right? Like what if Mary was left out of the loop and Jesus just showed up? We would look at him and we would begin to question question, is he like us? Can he, can he be a representative for us? Is he even human like us, like Adam, the one whose life he needed to live in reverse opposite to? Or what if there were two parents and God miraculously stepped in? We would still look at that and we would say, well, Jesus, this, he, he has an origin just like mine. How could he be fully God? How could he bear an infinite wrath if he is not an infinite being? But then in addition, Jesus bears our humanity without our inherited sin. Does that make sense? Like all of you when you were born, when you were, actually before that, Psalms 51.1 says, in iniquity were you conceived. Sin is a part of your condition. You got fingerprints, you got sin right? Like that's how it plays out. Then how is it that Jesus bypassed that? Luke 1 tells us a little bit. And these are all going to appear, by the way. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Was it because Mary was holy? Was it because Mary was sinless? No, the Bible makes it very clear. It's the Holy Spirit that comes upon her. It's God that overshadows her. Therefore, this child will be called Holy. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, there's this belief that Mary was sinless. That that doesn't exist in scripture. Mary even herself talks about her own humility. But then in addition to that, it wouldn't fix anything anyway. Because if Mary was sinless, what would we say about her mom? Was she also sinless? And then it goes all the way back to Eve. And I think all of us would agree that Eve was not sinless. He bears our humanity. This idea of God saying, 
He is my son. But what about the incarnation? Why does that matter? Incarnation is a word you won't find in the Bible, sort of like the Trinity. It's just something that is true. And we've actually taken the Latin word. uh, I I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. But incarnation means to make flesh. It is God not taking away part of himself, but remaining fully God and putting on, taking on, making flesh for himself to come fully man. Now this is important. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. If he is not, then no finite creature could bear that infinite judgment. No finite creature could bear that infinite. Check out what Romans 3 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's your condition. Well, if you've trusted in Christ, it's your condition. All of us have sinned. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means payment, by his blood. No finite creature could bear that. God put Jesus forth because he was the only one who could. That's why it matters that he was fully God. In addition, we needed a mediator. We needed someone who was able to be God for us and us to God. To, to represent us to God and represent God to us. This is how it's put in 1 Timothy. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a... And so look at the beauty of the Trinity in agreement here. God puts him forth, but at the same time, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony. This is, this is John 14, 6. Jesus saying, I, 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 nothing else, just me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. We needed a bridge. We needed something to fill in the gap between us and God. And then finally, Jesus is fully man. And he had to be. He had to represent our obedience where Adam failed. Romans 5 puts it this way. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus had to be a man. Like you and I, I was, uh, I was at a Christmas party the other night, and I don't know if Delaney and Garrett are in here, but Callan walked by. Callan looks like he's gonna be a king of a man. Like, it's a big baby, right? Like, he, I think Garrett was like, yeah, Saban's already been calling. Anyway, so I was, I, I was looking and, and I was talking to one of my friends. And I was like, hey, sorry to like pull the pastor card. I know we're at a Christmas party and I'm pulling the pastor card right now. But how insane is it that Jesus came like a toddling little humble baby? How insane? That doesn't exist anywhere else in religion. That doesn't exist anywhere else in philosophic thought. Like only God would come up with that as the way for Jesus to toddle like the babies that are toddling there. The absolute humility of God coming in that way. But he had to, to be our obedience, to obey where Adam failed. To be our sacrifice, our substitute. Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 2. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make, again, propitiation. To be able to pay for our sins. He had to be like us in every way for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those of us who suffer. If Jesus weren't a man, he couldn't have taken my place. He couldn't have taken yours. And finally, he sets an example for us. First Peter says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus lived the life that he calls us to live. And just as Isaiah was commissioned and empowered, he commissions and empowers all of us who trust in him to follow his example and live that out. All of this is true. All of this is important. All of this is bigger than a story. It's got to be something that's down in here. The virgin birth and the incarnation. But wrapped around those two truths, 
written across. If God is holding those two important theological truths together, written across his arms is salvation is from the Lord. Do you see it? A virgin birth? What did Mary do? That's the point. Emmanuel, God with us, what is it that we did? That's the point. Isaiah being called up into this vision, what did he do? That's the point. This remnant of Israel being left after they cursed at God, it spit at God and walked in darkness. What did they do? That's the point. Emmanuel, God with us, is the great promise that we never would have reached out to him, but he did reach down to us in Jesus Christ for those of us who trust in him. And just as the seed, that stump was buried and sprouted, Jesus went on the cross and died and was buried and inexplicably just like we read about in Isaiah all of a sudden is around again conquering sin and death for all of those who would trust in him I want to end with a quote that will not be if I can find there it is that will not be from Spurgeon so I'm sorry you'll have to get on Google to find one for today this is from John Calvin maybe you've heard of him If you're not like one of the heady people and this shoots right over your head, that's completely fine because the heady people we already decided aren't like their wit and their wisdom when they stand before God will seem like foolishness anyway. It's pretty heady, but man, it's good. Let me end with this and pray and Stokes, you can come up. The case was certainly desperate. If the Godhead itself did not descend to us, it being impossible for us to ascend. Thus the Son of God behooved to become our Emmanuel, God with us, the God with us, and in such a way that by mutual union, his divinity and our nature might be combined. Otherwise, neither was the proximity near enough, nor the affinity strong enough to give us hope that God would dwell with us. This season, we celebrate the close affinity of God, the close proximity of God, willing to go to great lengths to rescue you. And it's written all over the book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close the Bible, I, I pray that what would happen would be that we would celebrate in thanks and in worship Emmanuel, God with us. It's true every season of the year, but this season even more so, we put our eyes and our hearts and our emotions and our affections behind this idea that you came when we were in great darkness to meet us and show us the way to salvation. May our worship, may our response, may the lives that we live lead us in that truth. And if there are any here this morning that are not trusting and believing in you, they've been believing in something else, may they realize that salvation only, always and only comes from the Lord and you have made a way through Jesus Christ and his broken body on the cross if we would trust in his work, not in our own. May this season be one where we are bold like Isaiah, to go into difficult places, to have difficult conversations with family members, to have awkward conversations with people that we bump into, that Christmas would be more than what's written on a mug or a sweater that we wear or a reason that we gather on a certain day or the other. May this season, for those of us who are commissioned by you as Isaiah was, may it be about proclaiming that God came to us, for us, and for his glory. May that be the way that we live. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.